Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest, you're, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the command, or sorry, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, your glory is meant to overwhelm us as creatures. We are to fear you, that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might image your glory in obedience, that obedience resting on the faith that we have in your Son. We are thankful for his work to fulfill 
your commands to bring about a new and better covenant. And we pray that as we consider your word this morning, that you would give us grace, that you would give me grace, that you would help all of us to rejoice in your word, that we might rejoice in your glory, that you would make us like our Savior through the work of your Spirit, and that through that transforming work, we would proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth, that all peoples might know your glory. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. It was a few years ago, Lindsay and I found out we were going to be adopting our first son, our first child. We were going to get a spunky two-year-old, brown-eyed, blonde-haired, handsome little chunk of a boy. And we were just elated, so excited. And being two and and coming into our house, we knew that our, our son had gone through some difficulties in his life. There were some certain challenges that he had been through. And so naturally, I, I went and asked for, for counsel. We were not going to covenant at the time, but I, I went and asked an elder what I should do because, you know, I, I have this new little image bearer I'm commanded to care for and lead and, and teach the word to. And so I, I asked an elder at the church we were going to at the time how to go about reading and teaching the Bible to this little two-year-old. And the response I was given was to, the, the, the counsel I was given was to forego reading the Bible to my son because that would be beyond his cap, uh, capacity. I, I'm not sure that I've ever disregarded advice more quickly than I did in that moment. Um, I didn't say anything at the time, but I definitely did not have any sense of, of wanting to even consider that counsel. Because given the challenges, given the, the situation for my son, what could be better for him than to hear the word of the Lord? What has more power to help my son than the word of God? And what was sweet to see God's faithfulness to, to bless those efforts. It did not take long before Lindsay and I would see our son <laughs> setting up his stuffed animals, opening his Bible, <laughs> and preaching to them, <laughs> trying to teach them. And I, he must have been like two or three. Um, one of his sermons or, or family devotions that he was doing with his little bears, um, it was something because we were going through the book of John in church at that time. He, was, he said something like, Paul says in John 40, oh, so none of this is accurate so far. <laughs> Paul says in John 40, God, Jesus, people sin, judge which isn't the worst sermon that's ever been preached. <laughs> and then in addition to that, we started to see how he would, he, would, he would take those stuffed animals and he would go put them in different chairs in our living room and then give them a little Bible book and have them just sit there and be quiet, which they did a great job. But he was doing that because, and he was, he was teaching them the Bible, he was teaching them to sit still and be quiet because this is what we were doing in the house. We were teaching him the word, and we were teaching him how to be in the church service with us. And he mimicked what he was taught. He was extending what we were doing with him. He was trying to make disciples on his own, and he's still doing that with his little brothers, and they're doing it with him. And it conveys the point. We all need to know the word. 
The word has an effect. It, the word is there to help us to fear the Lord. And as we fear the Lord, it helps us to rejoice in his covenant love. And that, that fear, that rejoicing in God's covenant love is there to keep us from wandering and to keep us from wandering headlong into idolatry. And so the main point we're going to consider this morning in the book of Deuteronomy is that we must be careful to fear God and avoid idols. We must be careful to fear God and avoid idols. So we've, um, we've kind of come into this new section of Deuteronomy. The first uh, three and then some of this fourth chapter are all focused on introducing this covenant that God's making with this new generation of Israel as they're going into the land. And so a lot of what Moses has been recounting here in this opening section has been God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to his people throughout their history. And in light of God's covenant faithfulness and in light of God's covenant commands, Israel must gladly obey their covenant Lord. And in obeying their covenant Lord, as we read through this first part of chapter 4, they are going to image the glory of their covenant God so that all peoples, in fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham, all peoples would come to know the glory of the Lord. So that has been God's intent for Israel. And we'll discuss how that is fulfilled as we go forward this morning. So let's pick up here in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So that this take care language, this cautionary language, I hope you heard it the first time we read through it. This is going to be all over this passage. It's a longer passage that we're, we're looking at this morning, but I think we, it's good that we do because it opens and closes in a similar fashion with the same thing going on in the middle. So this is setting up a, a, a sort of juxtaposition. There's, there's two outcomes that will result from how Israel interacts with, with their Lord. They're either going to grow in imaging him and reflecting his glory to the nations, or they're going to go the way of idolatry. And so they really do have to be careful because there isn't this comfortable, lazy boy middle ground where they can have the blessings without the faithfulness. So indeed, they have to be careful. We're going to see God is a consuming fire. We're going to see how they have to be careful in verse 23 specifically because of this idol problem. And the problem for Israel goes all the way down to their hearts. They have to be careful. They have to remember the things that their eyes have seen. They have to remember all that God has done, how he has revealed his glory. And they have to be careful because these things could very well depart from their hearts. Their hearts are a problem. They can't follow their hearts. And, and so we see that for our hearts to become properly focused on the Lord, God has to do work in our hearts. We're going to see that as we go forward in the book of Deuteronomy. They, they have this, this need for their hearts to be circumcised, and yet they can't do it. But God is going to do it for them. Even as they break covenant, God is going to restore them. And we'll see in chapter 30 that God will circumcise their hearts and provide exactly what they need. He says then in the second part of verse 9, going into verse 10, Make them known to your children and your children's children 
how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. So they are to make known the glory of God to their children in a way that is intimate and covenant-focused. And you see that because when he's telling them to make them known, the things they've seen, the revelation of God's glory, to make them known to your children, that word for known is the same word for Adam knowing his wife Eve and producing progeny from that intimate knowing. The focus of what these Israelites are to do in their parenting is to make known to their children the glory of God in his covenant love. This is this. So we've talked about how God's as a father instructing Israel as a son, calling them to be proper image bearers of his glory. And what Israel's supposed to do with that is to take their little image bearers, their children, and to teach them that same glory so that they would also image the Lord. It is that faithful teaching of God's glory to their little image bearers that God blesses in his covenant faithfulness, as you see in Exodus 34. He will reward that to a thousand generations. So this is, this is a, a serious task. And the goal of the task is stated specifically to be so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. So I'm going to talk about how parents are to go about doing this teaching for their children. Let's unpack first this idea of fearing the Lord because it's so pivotal. So if you can, and I'm going to illustrate this and explain why I'm using this illustration in a moment. If you can imagine with me a mountain, and on this mountain, there is just the most beautiful castle you've ever seen. And that castle has an open gate. And in that open gate, there is a king who is calling people to come to him and be part of his kingdom and be saved. Now, going down the mountain into this deep valley at the bottom, you see a kingdom that's already in ruin and it's about to crumble. And it's because the king has declared that he's going to bring ruin on that bad castle that's down in that valley. The fear of the Lord is a recognition that that king's going to do what he said. He's going to bring that judgment and ruin on the rebellious kingdom that's trespassing in his land. So what the fear of that king should do is not drive you away. It's not like you see when you see a bear in the woods. If you fear the bear, you run away from it. That's not what this means. The fear of the Lord is going towards God. It's going towards the Lord. So they, the, the fear of the Lord is to compel them towards his glory, that they would be in awe of the glory of this king and then enter into his love and kingdom and presence to be part of his people forever. And, and why I use that illustration is because this seems to be what's at the heart of, of this, this reminding them of Horeb. Of, that's another term for Mount Sinai. They've come to the mountain of God at Sinai, entering into covenant love with him after he had brought ruin on Egypt. Egypt was, they talk in the Old Testament, talks about descending into Egypt. Egypt is in the pit. It's a place of death. And God brought his people out, bringing devastation on Egypt. That's not where you want to be. Where you want to be is with the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is to rightly acknowledge and fear the wrath that comes 
on disobedience and rebellion, and in that fear, be drawn in awe towards his glory. It helps us to stay following the way of the Lord, resulting in being in his presence. So how how is that teaching the fear of the Lord accomplished? God said that the, the Lord said to me, so this is God speaking to Moses, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. So what we are doing in, in ministering to our children and making them know the covenant love of the Lord is teaching them the Bible, teaching them the word of God, how he has revealed his glory in his word. And, and in addition to that, this is, this is teaching us that we should have a high level of expectation for, for our children because God does. Because this generation that's being called to this, they, they were only 20 years or younger at the time of Sinai because in Numbers 14, the first generation is wiped out because of their covenant unfaithfulness. So the, the, what God did at Sinai was before these, these babies, children, young adults, they saw the glory of the Lord. They were accountable for knowing that glory and then transferring that knowledge to their children. And, and similarly, and this is showing us what it means to teach a child to obey. A child needs to be taught complete obedience from the heart the first time. And, and, and we see all of that it, just in this passage. The first part of this passage, like we looked at last week in the first eight verses, complete obedience is required. From the heart, it is required. Keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Full obedience from the heart in the first time. Because when we look at Moses later in this passage, it's because he was not faithful the first time God called him when he was to, to speak to the rock. He didn't do it the first time. He didn't do it right. He disregarded the Lord. And therefore, that was, that was worthy of a consequence for him. So we're, we're getting a picture of what it means to teach children to obey. Full obedience from the heart the first time. And yet, the reason children need to obey that way is not to make a parent's life convenient or to make our lives easier. The point is that our children would find ultimate blessing through fearing the Lord. It is so that the child is blessed. It is because we love them that we, that we command them to obey in that way that they might see that what they're doing with mom and dad is reflective of how they're treating God. It is not about us. And we have to be particularly careful because how our culture, we talked about this in Sunday school, how our culture defines love and loving parenting is not biblical. Um, if you think about an unruly child, uh, our culture would tell you that you have your unruly child. It's loving to just you know, give them a tablet and uh, reward their unruliness and, and let them be quiet that way. If you reward the unruliness, they're going to think, I can act however I want. They're going to think they don't have to live in the fear of the Lord, and they're going to be drawn away from God into ruin. What we should do is correct the unruliness 
and minister the gospel to them that they would know the Lord so that the new covenant love of God is written on the tablet of their heart. We are to minister the gospel to our children for God's glory and for their sake. And so the the high standard of, of Christian parenting is not about the parent. It's about God. It's about our children. And so there, there should, and this, this allows for what should take place in Christian parenting. There's a necessary peculiarity to Christian parenting because while we do have a high standard for what obedience looks like from our children, because it is focused on loving them and blessing them, that means we can simultaneously have a high level of affection and, and intimacy with our children at the same time. Well, is that, that Christian dad who lives down the road, is he more strict or loving? Yes. That, that's how it should be. He is both. And why? Because he loves his children enough to teach them the word so that they fear the Lord. How this takes place starts in the formal and leads to the informal. I'll explain what I mean by that. God is making this covenant with Israel, his son at Sinai. And this covenant is stipulating in formality how their relationship is to work. And so the formal covenant making at Sinai dictates the rest of Israel's life. Formal at Sinai, the informal ongoing throughout the rest of their life stipulated by that, that formality. Similarly, when we come together to celebrate the new covenant work of Christ every Sunday at church, we do it at the very beginning of the week, the morning of the first day. Why? Because we want to set the tone that everything we do in the Christian life throughout the rest of the week is to be for the glory of God. We start with this formal gathering to set the tone of every informal thing that happens to the rest of the week. Similarly, doing family devotions, opening the word, praying, and singing together is a means by which the family formally says, this is what we are about. So that as we go about our informal life together in every area, we know what we're doing and why we're doing it. It is for the glory of God. It is according to his word. It is because we fear him. And this has, this has a, a number of benefits. To, to live our lives in such a way with our children, to have an ongoing interaction with them, to seek as much time with them as we can so we can minister, them, minister to them in every area of life. This, this has numerous benefits. I'm going to talk about a couple. One of them is that it allows our children to see the genuineness of our faith. Daddy doesn't just teach the Bible when he's at the dinner table. I'm seeing him faithfully minister that same word as we go about life. That's how it should be. In addition, as we live life together, because we have started with the formal, we can now take what we've done in the formal and apply it to every area of life. We can teach our children a biblical worldview because what God's doing here in teaching them the word and how to live out the word, this is, this is not just morals, nor, as we were talking about earlier, this is not a reductionistic gospel to where we just want this much Jesus so that way we can feel comfortable still living however we want. No, God is teaching Israel an entire biblical worldview right here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is how you take the word of God and live it out. This is how you're going to interact with the nations. This is how you're going to, as we're going to see later on, this is how you interact with the whole of creation. God is teaching his son an entire biblical worldview. And when we start with family devotions and then live life together as a family, we can now show them all of Christ for all of life, is what you hear people say. And that is absolutely true. Every area of our life brought under the lordship of Christ. 
and we show our children how to do it. I, I said there's a high standard for what children are called to do and being obedient to their parents. This is a high calling for parents, isn't it? <laughs> this is tough. If the, if the calling for children's high, the calling for parents is up there. This is difficult. What are we to do? I mean, I think the Lord does a lot of things to humble us. Like this morning in our house, it was hard parenting. Like sometimes you just have those mornings. I think it's God's grace that I had a hard morning this morning. What are we to do? We turn to God. Whether you're a young parent and you're seeing these areas that are that are out of step, whether patterned um, or you're just having a bad day, in either case, what are we to do? Repent. Turn to God. Especially for death. Repent to your wife and your kids. Show them the fear of the Lord by how you deal with your sin. Show the teeth of the gospel that changes you, that pierces to your heart and makes you more like Christ. And, and that same grace that comes by repenting when your children are in the house, I think that applies to even if you're an older parent and your children are out of the house. If, if we look at the Bible, if we're an older parent, we're looking at the Bible and we see these areas. You know, I, I haven't, I didn't set a high standard for obedience. I didn't show a high level of affection. I didn't do a formal teaching of the scriptures, and I didn't share enough of my life to teach you a biblical worldview. If you see these things and you repent to your child, there's there's an infinite amount of restoration that our sovereign God can do, even if we had a, a bad pattern of parenting for however many years. God is good and God is strong. And he will bless us as we as we draw near to him and ask him to help us be faithful and to restore where we have been lacking. So dads, this starts with, with, with us. We have to be the ones that this starts with, and then it will trickle down into the rest of our family. And that is the grace of God. Now, though it starts with dad, it does trickle down to the rest of the family, but even our efforts with our children are not done in a vacuum. What Moses is talking about here Gather the people to me. That's the Hebrew word for kahal. That's translated in the Septuagint as ekklesia. We're seeing how God orders his people, how he orders his church in this old covenant form uh, right here. And so what we're seeing is the ministry that's being done to these kids is also in the context of God's people. So if, if you're someone who doesn't have kids or you don't have your kids here, um, you have a significant role to play in discipling the next generation. Titus 2 calls all older men and older women to minister to the younger generation. What starts in the home needs to be reinforced in, in this body by everyone. So if you don't have kids, you, you have a significant role to play still. We, it, the parents need you. We need you. Minister to our children and teach them the gospel so that they see that this is not just mommy and daddy being crazy. No, this is what is truly blessed. What we're seeing here as well. When, when God calls them together, like we talked about with this generation, this generation that is being talked to here in Deuteronomy 4, they were not necessarily all adults when they were at Sinai seeing the square of the Lord. In addition, this gathering at Deuteronomy is, is similarly a gathering of all of God's people. We'll see later in Deuteronomy. Gather together. The, the children, the women, and the men, everyone, they're all gathered together. There's no youth group. There's no children's church. There's no nursery. And it's so that every one of these people gets exactly what they need down to the baby. They need to know the glory of God. 
and they need to know the glory of God through the word of God, and they need to know this with the people of God. So I can say definitively, I talked to Jeff to just confirm we're on the same page with this. I, I love hearing babies here. Like even while I'm preaching, it is not, it is not a hindrance. It is, it is like music in the background. Like I, I'd love it if we got to a point where we had an organ and someone could play while someone's preaching. But baby sounds are just such a great alternative to that right now. I, I love it. It, it. it is a blessing and joy to hear the children in our midst for a couple of reasons. One, because they are gifts from the Lord. Little image bears from God. They are a blessing, like we were saying in the Psalms this morning. They are a blessing. And what's, what's so glorious as well is that they are a blessing. And as they're here in our midst for our worship service, they are getting exactly what they need. They're seeing the glory of God displayed through the word in his people. It's great to have the kids in here. So if you have, a, I know we have, we have babies here and all kinds of little ones right now, and I love it. It is, I, I think Satan wants young parents to feel like, oh boy, everyone hates that my kids are in here. No, we love them. We want them to be here. I, and usually mine are the ones making the most noise anyway, and I still love them. <laughs> I was, and it, the reason I, I'm I'm harping on this is not just because it's a soapbox. It is a soapbox for me, but I think it's a biblical soapbox. But there's additional reasons to that. I, I was reading in an article this week, put out by Lifeway, and there's a vast amount of people who leave the church in their college years, and they they did the survey. They looked they looked at these people who had left during their college years, and then they asked them, you know, what were the most significant factors for why you ended up leaving. And I can't remember. It was like, I think it was one of the top three. It was really high up there. Over a quarter of the respondents said one of the biggest factors was that they did not feel connected with their church. They did not feel connected with their church. And I think oftentimes that's a self-inflicted wound. In the name of engaging age-appropriate teaching, we intentionally disconnect them from the rest of the body. And there's results. There's, there's consequences for such an action. They get disconnected, and then why would they stay connected? So many of them end up leaving. They need their parents to intentionally teach them the word, that they might fear the Lord. They need to be taught a biblical worldview. They need to come to church and be part of the body and to have older men and women minister to them and buttress the discipleship that's going on in the home. We need to disciple our children. And even more than that, what Moses is saying here, make them known to your children and your children's children. He has in mind here not just making disciples, but making disciples who will make disciples. It's good practice to start with the stuff there. It sets the tone for what's going to happen for the grandchildren. So the question before us, is are we preparing the young generation not just to be disciples, but to be disciple makers? Verse 11, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. We're seeing here that what's going on at Sinai, God appearing in this this fire, this darkness, cloud, and gloom, it has parallels with how God appeared to Abraham, 
the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot and the darkness when he made covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, similar to how God foreshadowed his coming to Sinai with the burning bush with Moses in Exodus 3. We're seeing here as well uh, parallels with, with the pillars um, that would travel with the Israelites. You had this pillar of cloud, and, and I think the, the symbolism there with the pillar of cloud being the one who rides in the clouds has come near to them. Heaven has come to earth with the people of Israel. But in addition, God is coming in a pillar of fire because he is a consuming fire. After the flood is when we start seeing God appear in this way. It's not until after the flood. And I think the, the message is, because of sin, God's not going to just clean it away temporarily like he did at the flood. When he comes again in finality, he's going to burn it all away so that it does not come back. And that's where I think this darkness plays him. He's going to undo the fallenness of this creation and bring about a new creation. It's going to get wiped out. And, and I, the fire has, has a few different symbols that go along with it. One of them being that final conclusive judgment. Another of them being that God is pleased to accept sacrifices that are placed in the set of his people. Because the altar that was in the tabernacle, you put your sacrifice on there, and the fire would transfer it up from earth to heaven. And God was accepted to please it as it was in accordance with his commands. And you see this word for fire here? All over the Old Testament, in the most pivotal parts, especially of the Torah, that are pertaining to sacrifice. That word for fire appears in Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac. It appears in Exodus 12 with the, the what they're doing with the Passover lamb. It appears in the covenant ceremony in Exodus 19 through 24. It appears all over the book of Leviticus, including Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. God is pleased to accept sacrifices that he would be at one, that there would be atonement between him and his people. And we see how God fulfills that himself because what we see in Genesis 22 is typifying how God is going to give up his own son. His own son is going to be the very light of the world who, though he is crucified in darkness, brings about the new creation. God's fire shining in this darkness is showing us that God is making all things new through the sacrifice and that sacrifice being his own son. Indeed, he is the light of the world. Indeed, he is the Lamb of God. And indeed, he takes, the, takes away the sins of the people. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. So we talked about this light and dark imagery, and now we're seeing further how God is doing a new creation work. Because what's this saying? The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words. This is, this is just like the, the, cre the creation account. God is speaking. He is bringing his words to his people. He is advancing his new creation plan by showing what is required out of the true seed of Abraham, what he needs to fulfill on behalf of his people to bring about righteousness for all of God's people. The note here, though, is that they saw no form. That's going to play a pivotal role in how we interpret the rest of the passage. They saw no form. Verses 13 and 14. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commands you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So God appears 
to them in glory at Sinai, and he makes a covenant with them. And as he makes a covenant with them, he gives them these two stone tablets. Now, I don't know what was on your flannel graph growing up, but what was on mine was something akin to um, the God essentially separating the first five commands or something like that. And so like taking the ten and separating them on two tablets, and I don't think that's correct. What it seems to probably have been is all of the, all of the ten words on one set of on, on one on one tablet, and then on the second tablet, all the words there, because he and his people each have a full copy of the requirements. Why that's important is God has said, "This is what it is like to image me," and Israel knows I have to follow everything God has said that I'm an image him. So, the there there's there's the point. These two tablets conveying how Israel is to obey their covenant Lord and follow Him. That I don't know why. Um, probably because of the historical translation. But in verse 13, He commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. That could literally be, literally be translated the Ten Words, which would further enforce our point that God is doing a new creational work in the people of Israel through this Sinai covenant, because. Just as God used his words to create, he is, he is now entering into covenant with Israel. And, and this is a step towards what God's going to do because when God makes covenant with Adam, it's just Adam. When God makes covenant with Abraham, it's just Abraham. And now he's entering into covenant with an entire nation of people, an entire nation that's supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And so God is bringing about a, a sort of new creational blessing by how he's interacting even with Israel at Sinai. So the point of all this is to say, I'm going to sum it up here. So if I've lost you, please follow this, this nutshell conclusion. I'm not the nut here, I hope. <laughs> this is helping us understand what command is. A, a command from the Lord. Because the, the ten words, they are commands. I'm not trying to say they're not commands. The commands, though, are words of life meant to bless the people, to make them further in the likeness of God as their father. And because that is such a profound blessing, what Moses is showing here, that should be a means for them to be zealously obedient to their father, to their covenant God. They are not to have any idols. They saw no form. They are to make no form. And part of why is because God has already made an image of himself. He's made humanity his image. And he's called Israel as a group to especially be that image of his glory. And we see how this is um, symbolized and made physical within the tabernacle. So this, this tabernacle, this tent where God was dwelling with Israel, in the, in the most holy place, what you have, you have the Ark of the Covenant. There's no idol there. There's no statue representing God. In a, in a pagan temple, that's exactly what you would have in that most holy place. You'd have some sort of statue, idol, representing the false deity. What is in the most holy place? There's the Ark of the Covenant, and what's in the Ark of the, what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Those tablets. So what this is showing us is that the only thing that would come into the most holy place bearing the image of God is the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And what would make him ultimately acceptable as a high priest is him heeding the covenant commands that God had given to his people. The Levitical high priest didn't do this. But there's a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who did. He's gone before us into the heavenly place. And what we're seeing here with, with the tabernacle, the, the anticipation is that 
the glory of the Lord in the most holy place should fill the holy place into the courtyard. And that's representative of the whole earth. And, and what's going on in Deuteronomy is we're seeing how the glory of the Lord that's with them in the tabernacle is meant to fill the land of Canaan until all the nations of the earth come to know the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord that we are to emanate through faith and obedience is going to fill the earth. He has loved his people and he will accomplish his purposes. We should rejoice in following the Lord and obeying his commands, looking to our high priest who has fulfilled them. We have to be careful though. Verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful. We have a propensity in our, in our fallen sinfulness to worship literally anything but God. That's, that's, that's the point of what he's saying here. In the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. He's going backwards through the order of creation here. Did you see that? He's, he's going through the entire order of creation. He's going to go into verse 19 to talk about the sun, the moon, the stars to cap it off. But, but he's showing us that we will literally worship anything in the creation and be distracted from worshiping the one true God. We need to be careful. And, and, and what's, what's really profound here is it's not just our propensity to worship the wrong things. Because when you think about what happened with the golden calf, they make this golden calf. They say, this is the God or the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Let's have a festival to the Lord going forward. They're trying to worship God, but they're doing it the wrong way. We have a high propensity to wander. We must be careful. Verse 19, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So this is a hard verse to interpret. The way I'm interpreting it, though, is to say, that they are taking um, taking what God has designed to be reflective of his glory and, and making these things, so the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're meant to reflect God's glory. Instead of seeing them as reflective of God's glory, they're making them ultimate and ignoring the Lord. That's how I'm interpreting this, and I'll, I'll explain why. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. In, in addition, like I was talking about in the creation, God had said, let there be light. And then he made the sun, the moon, and the stars to be reflective of God's glorious light in the creation and to serve as a worship calendar to remind the people of their festivals and their gatherings and their time to worship. They are both, so the sun, the moon, and the stars are meant to reflect the glory of God and to remind the people by their, their, their cyclical nature that they should keep worshiping the Lord. That's what they were meant for. And yet, even these reflective things in the creation and in the heavens are perverted so as to distract people from the glory of the Lord. Now, perhaps there's some of us who, who have a propensity to follow 
those astrological things that that are given out there obviously that's a perversion of of, of what God has made as well but I, I think you know it could be easy as well to think well we don't worship the sun and moon and the stars most of us so we could think that this doesn't have as much import for us and I, I would like to just point out that this actually can really help us if we consider sin like we've been talking about it's both obviously it's rejection of God following in in wickedness and outright disobedience to his to his commands but it's also just being distracted from his glory if we are not focusing on him and living a life of worship for him we are also in sin and that can oftentimes be found in what we're putting in our calendar what are we making a priority that we cyclically come back to we see this a lot um, and it's easy when you have kids it's easy for us when we have kids to see all these things that are not evil in and of themselves, but to fill up the can calendar with them to, to a degree where we lose out on time together as a family and we lose out on ample time together as a church. And then there's just a host of problems that will ensue from that. The marriage is not given sufficient time to be cultivated and, and to, to um, grow and thrive. As far as the children go, oftentimes when they're given so many rewards without having to do very much work at all, it results in the child um, having this entitled, spoiled nature. And in addition, because of the time that they can spend with other kids, they can get more oriented towards their peers than they are towards their parents or the older generation in church. And I don't say this to say that homeschooling is the answer because I see this sort of thing happen with homeschoolers. This is, this is, this is just a common threat in this day and specifically with with homeschooling we can because we do homeschooling if, if you if you do homeschooling you can have this temptation to think oh i really need my children to have friends we really need our children to have friends and oftentimes we fill the schedule with so many things that our children in their pursuit of friends lose out on their relationship with dad and their relationship with older people at church and that has bearing for the future because what that teaches kids is that it's more important for them to go about in the future making friends than it is for them to go about making disciples. I have really enjoyed all the times that we've gotten together with the Fritz family. Every time, all the boys are there. And it's super encouraging for me. I have a lot of fun. I hope they're having a lot of fun. Um, and, and there's, just a, there's so many things to enjoy from all of them being together. One of the things that I think is particularly joyous for me as a dad with young boys myself is that my boys are seeing that it is good to spend time with mom and dad even as young men that that is having an impact on another generation they're seeing what's really cool and it's to spend time with with mom and dad to spend time with the church that's glorious and so we have we have to be careful how we shape our lives we belong to god we have to subject everything to God, even our calendars. And that means sometimes saying no to things that would otherwise be fine and good. And dads, again, this starts with us. Sometimes those hard calls have to be made, and we are the ones who have to step up and do that. God wants pure, unadulterated worship of him. Verse 20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So the question is, why, why does God say he brought them out of the furnace? What's, what's the, the purpose of that? 
And I think Proverbs 17.3 kind of ties together in a bow why that would be. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. So God is, I think, using this furnace imagery to convey how he is testing his people. He is testing his people. And why is he testing them? To bring about a good result. You see how the furnace is directly tied to gold here. He is trying to work in them to refine them into an image, into his likeness, so that they purely reflect his glory. He wants to make them an image that is far better than the golden calf that they had made. He wants them to be a pure gold image of his glory. And so to achieve that end, he is doing the Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12 sort of discipline of his son that they might grow through the testing, that they might be refined. First Peter 1 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why the trials? Why the furnace of trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is calling his people to reflect his image, and he works that glory in us through testing. It doesn't feel good, but it is God's grace in us. And in that, that testing, God gives what is needed. You'll see in the Torah, God tested Israel 10 times. He gave them how many words? 10 words. God gives what his people need that they would endure the testing. And in addition, like we've talked about, God sets a high standard as a, as a father, both in terms of the call to obedience, but also in terms of what he wants to achieve in his son. He wants them to be gloriously blessed. And so again, if I can talk about a challenge of homeschooling in particular, and I've seen this one as well. There's a propensity to overmother children, including and especially boys. And what do I mean by that? Overmothering a child is when we make safety the ultimate goal of everything we do. Where we make safety more important than courage. Where we make safety more important than godliness. We need to raise our children so that they will reach maturation and stand firm in the faith. We want to train, especially our boys, to be warriors for the king. And testing is, is a means by which God is achieving this in his son. We have to, to train our boys to become men and train our girls to become women who are strong in their faith. And, and the, the danger is if you, if you make safety ultimate, you, you're teaching your child to think in terms of themselves and in terms of their livelihood as if that is ultimate. And the result will be that they're going to fear a lot of things, but it's very unlikely that they're actually going to fear the Lord. And in addition, they're going to learn to live passively and accomplish little to nothing in the name of Christ. Testing is strenuous, but testing is a means of the greatest blessing, that we would know the glory of the Lord. And so we have to be resolved in our minds. It is better that our children would die as a 20-year-old martyr than at 120-year-old, at 120 years old, die as a pagan. It is better that they die at that young age in Christ. 
What am I to do? What am I to do? My sons come to me and they say, Daddy, we're going we're gonna to go to this unknown country. We don't know what these tribes are going to be like, but we feel led to take the gospel to them. I might not get to see my sons again. I might not get to see my grandbabies. I might not get to have grandbabies. But why am I raising my children if not to serve the king? Our children belong to the Lord, and we should want gold for them, not glitter. And that extends to us as well. We should want the glory of the Lord, not simply comfort. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Moses is not going to get to go into the land. The reason? They provoked him in their sin, and he responded in his own sin. There's consequences for his sins. And, and I think this is inserted here to further enforce the warnings through this passage. If Moses is not exempt from what we're looking at here, why would anyone else think that they're exempt? And in addition, if Christ comes in fulfilling Isaiah 11, living out the fear of the Lord, if Christ does that, living out the fear of the Lord, why would any of us think that we're exempt as well? Now, is this to say that living in the fear of the Lord, following the commands of the Lord, being tested, pursuing tough but meaningful grace, is this, is this all to say that living as a Christian is drab, that it's boring, or that it's not worth it? No, it's not. Look, look at verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When it's saying here that, that the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, we should, we should see that that jealousy is right and proper and good. This is a husband who will not allow his bride to fall away ultimately. He is going to make her glorious and bring her home. It doesn't get better than that. This is the good life. To know this jealous God, this perfect covenant head, who is a faithful head to his bride, this is it. This is the good life. This is what we were made for. We see, though, a problem. Because as we were talking about some of the different covenant partners, the problem is with the human covenant partner. Adam broke the covenant. Abraham was not perfectly faithful. The first generation's already wiped out because they were not faithful. And then the subsequent generations of Israel are not going to be faithful as well. We're seeing here that what God's saying in Deuteronomy 4 is instructive about our biggest problem, the biggest threat to us, the biggest threat to our children. He's talking about the nations. He's talking about interacting with all the peoples of the earth. And he's not telling them to worry about their numbers. No. What's he telling them to, to be careful with? They're idols. That's what we have to worry about. Not the numbers, not the might. People seem strong, but God brings them low. We have to be careful with our hearts and what we are worshiping. How does someone sum up a passage like this? You go to Hebrews 12 because he actually comments on this. So let's go over to Hebrews 12 real quick. So Hebrews 12 um, 
toward the, the end of the, the chapter there, it actually is, is quoting verse 24 here in Deuteronomy 4. And so I, I want us to consider these words as we come to a close this morning, so that way we consider how God comments on this own passage himself. <clears throat> so Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's talking about what happened at Sinai right here. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. How are they made perfect? How are they made righteous? And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He's saying this corrupted creation that's come under corruption through sin is going to be done away with, and what's going to remain is an incorruptible, unshakable new creation. Therefore, what are we to do in light of everything he said here? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We see that what we're looking at here in Deuteronomy 4, all that's required of it, and there is much required in it, this is not fulfilled by our efforts or our ingenuity, or our strength, or our wisdom. The word that was in the beginning, God the Son, the very image of the Father, came incarnate. He has fulfilled these commands himself. He went to the Mount of Crucifixion, took on the darkness of being decreated, killed for his people, that he might take the fire of God's wrath that their sins deserve, and atone for it by his blood, and through his resurrection is restoring us to the image of God and refining us that we might be something more precious than perishable gold. And so what is the result of that? The author of Hebrews is telling us we are brought to Mount Zion, to a new creation where there's only light. There is no darkness. And we see the very face of the Lord, a glory far greater than what was revealed at Sinai. And we get to enjoy the intimate presence of our jealous husband as the bride redeemed. We are indeed a treasured possession of the Lord. We are indeed his inheritance, designed to be with him forever, and God does what he says. And he has brought it to fulfillment in Christ, and he will bring it to completion in the future, and there's absolutely nothing in this world that's going to stop it. We need to believe in this gospel. 
We need to tell this gospel to the, to the ends of the earth, and we need to repent of the sin that's getting in the way of us enjoying this glorious God.